So I'm Barış Can Kaştaş. I'm an EYPer from EYP Turkey, and I did EYP from around 2012 to 2019, more or less. Right now, I'm doing a PhD in philosophy. Before this, I was in much more of a classical EYP pathway of, you know, political science with a EU bent, and then went to political theory. Now doing like you know more theoretical stuff, but um, my experience in EYP was always you know just being involved with a lot of different people and seeing just pushing the boundaries of what I can what I think I can do and the kind of people that I know constantly. So I've I it was a very fun seven years, and I hope that other people who are active now in the community will also. Get the same amount of fun that I did, and the same amount of development and you know growth that I had back then. So, so, so you're in Ankara now. Uh, what's taken you there? The PhD or something else? Yeah, it's the PhD. Essentially, I mean, I, I kind of, st- I mean, because normally I am from Turkey through and through, but then slightly also thanks to UIP because I did start this as an excuse for building up my CV when I was a stupid teenager. I did end up going to you know university in France and then did my masters there as well, but then I I went back to Turkey for my PhD, so you know. Going to more and more abstract fields, started with political science, then political theory. Now I'm doing philosophy in parentheses political. So it's well, it's a. I mean, it's not the most EYP route, I suppose, but I've always liked the theory side of things as well. So you know, EYP has still been helpful in that regard. Yeah, haven't don't have to. Do a lot of EYPers do PhDs? I guess some of us do, but is it like more than average, I guess? I mean, I don't have any official surveys on my hand, but from my gut feeling, I'd say, you know, there's a decent amount of STEM because, I mean, that those are popular fields and there, there are a lot of practical things that, especially like, you know, being a media team member can teach you in those in that regard. Some creative work as well for the same reason. And then a lot of the you know, obvious European policy track, I'd say. But PhD, uh, honestly, the only one I can think of is like Vivek and, you know, a few other people who are, you know, but even then, I'm, I know some people who did like their undergrad in philosophy, but I haven't really met a philosophy PhD in EYP. But then again, you do become a bit old as you get to a PhD. So the why part of EYP... (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think there's a couple of bits on there. Definitely, on the one hand, it's about the age side. That by the time you're doing a PhD, maybe you're no longer really interacting with as many EYPs anymore, so that the EYP doesn't really know that you're doing yeah. a PhD. And then, secondly, in terms of comparing it to average, well, like you know, <laughs> EYP isn't exactly representative of an average population. EYP tends to be very white, very middle class, very privileged, very uh, easy access to higher education and all stuff. So mm-hmm. even looking at university d- degrees in EYP, I would say you're probably looking at maybe 80 to 90% of EYPers who actually have some kind of university degree, whereas the the country that has the highest level of university attainment in Europe is Ireland. And I think they have 52%. There's only like one or two countries in the EU in which the majority of the people have gone to uni. Every other country in the EU is the minority of the people who go to uni. Although is that statistics on like the entire population or youth? Because I feel like... On the current age. So when they do that, they have the current segment. So they don't compare it to people who are in their 80s and ask whether they, they're looking at people now and whether they go in or not. And it's, it's a shocking statistic because when we look at it, we're like, well, if we think of everyone that we know, the majority of the people went to uni. Yeah, yeah. But it, that's, that's fascinating. A bubble. <laughs> I think I know like one person who didn't go to uni. Yeah, I mean, especially I think, 
I think especially if you ask anyone from EYP Turkey, I don't know how it has changed yeah. in the last few years, but I think EYP Turkey in itself is quite elitist in, <laughs> in terms of the kind of, you know, kind of people who go there. And so, yeah, I don't think I've yeah. ever heard anyone who didn't go to university from like the EYP alumni in Turkey. And even from my own cohort of like, you know, classmates and everything. Like some people have switched career paths, you know, went to a different uni at second year, started things from scratch, things like that. But even then, it's like a shocking exception that, pe- that you know, people get a lot of hushed, you know, surprises and things like that. So it's really weird when you think about it, like, you know, how how much of a bubble it is. Like, especially, you know, it's very privileged. It's very, it's very much of a specific social class. That's yeah. for sure. Especially like, if you're in Turkey. I agree. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, I think, It's a, it's a very weird interplay of a lot of things. And, you know, when I was in the border of UIP Turkey, for instance, I did see the reasons behind that elitism, like in the sense of you kind of want to send a, at least somewhat competent people to the IS. And in Turkey, you know, language education being what it is, that leads to a very specific kind of people only being able to go. So they had their own justifications. But even, even then, it was still very much of a, I mean... You would be judged by your social capital, definitely, and you know you. And it's not just even like the competences, competency, or money. I think it's just that the kind of you know social eloquence or like the the poise that you carry yourself with in the national selection conference. It really depends on your social background as well. Mm. And I think I think it's called arrogance. <laughs> I the was poised in which you carry yourself diplomatic. you know there are two different ways of describing it <laughs> but yes I mean you do need to, you do end up being a bit haughty I guess uh, and <laughs> that haughtiness the jury's like I mean you know or it's either haughtiness or at least like you know or you you have this kind of self-confidence or that That allows you to do that. That allows you to pull off weird stunts during the GA that gets the jury's attention. Uh, it, I always find it funny when you compare different EYP entities, and it's something that we've talked a lot with, with Joel about, like comparing them. And I always bring up the example of EYP France, which is completely different to every other EYP entity out there. Where EYP France, for me, is the most diverse, diverse. Uh, EYP NC out there in which people are from every social background um, and is way more representative of the actual country than anywhere else. And one of the thing, things that the EYP like international community look at France is like they don't speak English. It's like, yeah, that isn't the biggest criteria in which people get selected for ISs for. <laughs> they get selected based on their commitment, based on their emotional intelligence, based on their cooperation and like these kind of things not necessarily based on can they debate well or can they string a certain argument in a way in G8 that sounds good or something like this. And so you see something different. Which I always found kind of interesting, this argument of, yeah, we should aim to send this like a quote-unquote impressive people to IAS. It's like, why? Like <laughs> anyone who's chaired an IS knows, like the delegates are that even smarter than they're at your regionals. Like they're the same delegates. Goddamn! Like calm down. <laughs> why why yeah. do we aim to be so? Like yeah, no, our nationality needs to like show that we 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 have the smartest people to send here. And I mean, I guess it really depends on also like what purpose does EYP serve? Like here I am going into deep theory, but what basically happens is basically like when. When you look at what EYP is trying to do, a lot of people, for a lot of people, it does very different things. You know, for some people, it is much more of a, you know, not non-partisan but still political educational tool to, you know, teach European youth about European institutions and what the EU and European cooperation in general does for them and make them understand how it works. In that case, you know, trying to trying to have as much outreach as possible makes perfect sense. But if you look at things from more of an MUN-like angle, where it's more of a debate competition, but with you know silly games, or if you like, if it, or also, I think this is also in a similar way how, to how the EYP UK sees it. You know, for them, regionals are very much you know only GA. At least that was the case like five years ago. Still or something. is. So at least I think they have some some uh, <laughs> some exceptions to that, but I think it's mostly still one day sessions. Yeah, and. Like when that's the case, then obviously 
would the point of a debate, the virtue of a debate, if you were, if you if you will, is you know ha- having the most eloquent people and having the best arguments out there. And in that case, you're selecting for that. And like in Turkey as well, because this is usually organized by like you know student clubs in high schools. A lot for a lot of them for the teachers in charge of the thing or in my high school's case you know for in 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 the eyes of the students in charge of the club eyp and mun and things like that were you know these competitions in which your school excelled so in that in that case you know if your if your if one of your delegates gets selected to the is you know that's bonus points for the club yeah exactly and th- that's something i heard a lot about in the uk where um, I was I was talking to a friend who uh, who like their school doesn't do EYP or anything like that, and I was like, how come? You know, like there's these events that they come up and that they're like, well, you know, we don't want to be competing against those big private schools. They're just going to bully us. Like there's there's no point, and it's kind of seen on that that there's no point trying to compete with those those schools where people are paying twenty, thirty, forty thousand a year to attend. And they have all these resources to kind of give everyone this head start. And then one of uh, one of the issue that I heard about with the OIP UK there was that in order to be able to run these events, they find it difficult to have access to funding. And so the easiest way to get funding is just to charge the attendees as much money as you can. Oh. And they have very high fees, even for these small regional events, their fees are like way higher than what we would charge in France for a national event or a forum or something like that. And when you have those kind of fees, or it's the private schools that they can all pay and they're all willing to pay. And there's even more private schools out there who are willing to pay for this. And so they suddenly have, they're almost kind of locked in within the structure and it's difficult to move out. So on the one hand, I kind of look at that stuff and I completely disagree. But on the other hand, I kind of sympathize with them to the extent that I can feel how they're locked into this structure and it's difficult to move out of it. And I guess this is one of the things about EYP being a collection of different NCs and every NC can decide their own rules and how they want to do things is that we get some places in which things get fucked up and we get other places in which we get other kind of fuck ups or other good things coming out of, and then we get to compare around. Yeah, it's kind of funny how EYP in that sense is like capitalism. It is a really <laughs> shitty system for some people to live in, but the existence of the system maintains the existing system. And just those countries just can't <laughs> easily get out of it. Beautiful. Beautiful. <laughs> but, I mean, I think when it comes to the, the oddities of EYP bubble, the one... One of the things that shocked me the most was the MacBooks, in the sense that, like, the first time I went abroad, like, you know, I think it was 2012, 2013, whatever, you know, regional session in EYP Poland. And, like, I'm, you know, in in Turkey, Macs are insanely expensive, more expensive than they have any right to be, even more than, you know, a PC of a regular, like, you know, what you would normally get. And... I was quite shocked to see that, you know, how every media team member, every chair, they just, how everyone has Macs. Like, you know, at some point you kind of want to quip, like, you want to, you want to quip saying, I guess they give you a MacBook when you first become like an official or something, because it just feels surreal that so many people would be able to access this for my middle class mind. But, and I think, I think the network has done, has done a lot of effort to improve on this. And EYP France in particular, I think, is very exemplary in that regard. Like, the last session I did was the regional session in Fontainebleau in 2019. And I think the Ile-de-France Regional Committee was really committed to, you know, making it more accessible to everyone and to make it a bit more representative as an event. And Mm. that does mean that the participants don't have the social capital as, you know, people from the posh schools who can walk the walk and talk the talk. And... It is from a very pragmatic, you know, from a very snooty perspective, it does make for a harder session to run, but that's a very selfish and very classist way of seeing things when you think about it. I mean, it is it, it is still much more important for these people to ha- experience a session, I think, than to have your run-of-the-mill session where everyone is very comfortable with the games and with the general structure of, the every, of everything where, you know, the social mores are perfectly reproduced, if you will. 
to me, I think EYP's value in like many things in life is in a lot of things that it doesn't advertise itself for. It's all the things that you end up picking up on the side in the sense that like for me, it was definitely one way of getting out of this socially, socially anxious, very much of a nerdy persona and get a bit more confidence in myself and, you know, be a bit more social. Like I think without EYP, I would have been a much more nerdy guy. And I mean, I, I, I do enjoy my nerdiness now, but I am very much, I'm very happy that EYP allowed me to get out of my shell, but that's not what we advertise it on. I mean, to some extent we do, but I think it's, it's much more of a personal and intimate way of self-development that, that is very hard to quantify. And, you know, that wouldn't be able to get you sponsorship deals in a way, in a way. but it also wouldn't get you delegates like, yeah, come here. It will change you as a person. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's always difficult to break up these like really difficult concepts in which you have to experience within it and reflect for years and try to put that in a soundbite and expect somebody to even understand it. And it's like, well, you know full well that the amount of time it took you to be able to comprehend this and to try to put it into something that now you understand, how on earth do you expect them? But on the other hand, I, I do see a lot of progress with so many different NCs of what they try to do. And I, th I think that we definitely need to give like, some shout outs there. Like one of my favorite sessions ever was the Decode Forum in Armenia. It was beautiful. What, what they did is they held, um, so in, in Armenia, one of the issues is that you have Yerevan as the capital. And then a lot of people who live in other villages or other towns and other places uh, in, in Armenia, kids, when they're growing up, they never get the chance to come to the city and kind of the city is the main resource for everything the main resource for culture the main resource for education the main resource for so so many different domains of their life and there's kind of a cutoff so if you're not if you don't have access to Yerevan then you're at a great disadvantage um, and so Armenia in general has been trying over the years to try to break that so they built the um, I think it's the the Ministry for Finance or something. They built that in Dilijan in a in a town in the mountains. And they started like try, try to diversify where things are. And uh, what Decode was, was uh, a set of five different sessions. I think it started with four regional sessions in which they would go to the outskirts in all random like little towns and villages and only invite locals. So only kids from local schools would be able to come to these sessions. And then people will be picked from those ones to then come to the decode forum that would be that was then held in Didijan. And then going there, I think we, we were only a handful of internationals who, who attended there. But then I think we were like the first internationals that most of the delegates had ever met in their lives. And it was finally given an opportunity to people that they were so, so hardworking. They were so committed, so into absolutely everything. Just like have a chat with any random delegate and I would have a profound conversation. It would be amazing. And it's like, well, these are the people who deserve to spend more time in EYP. And so you have these kind of structured events that actually allow those people to come in in a nicer way. And I think there are lots of efforts like that. And I think we do have to give some recognition to those ones. Yeah. Absolutely. I think, I, th I think that's also on the more educational side of things. I know that in, within the EU, understanding Europe, I, from what I understand, is also mm. a, big of an out, a big outreach project in that regard as well. And I think it's quite wonderful that such efforts exist. And EYP France is also very you know, outreach-minded in that regard too. So I think, I, I, sadly, I'm, I, from, as far as I know, EYP Turkey did not have that opportunity. And I mean, there... We always wanted to, like when I was in the NC, we always wanted to consider like, a, I distinctly remember a talk happening of, you know, taking EYP France as an example and going, oh, we are, we are just like EYP France right before they opened up their regional committees. So perhaps we could do some outreach programs similar to that as well. And then politically speaking, things did not go in a very viable way for that to happen. And so it's, it's very unfortunate, but um, what I think especially in countries, places or areas where it's very difficult to have intercultural contact in this manner, not just, you know, between, you know, Armenians, like, you know, a, a, a French-British person visiting, a, uh, visiting Armenia, but also like, you know, just for instance, you know, a Turkish person going to Armenia or vice versa, like even these small, amount, small amounts of, small amount of 
interactions can really have incredibly positive effects. I mean, I I know that the amount of people that I've been to and the, the amount of you know stereotypes that were you know smashed in my brain while meeting these people was really tremendous. And I think it I think it's it, it's it is definitely one of the biggest strengths of VYP. And it is a bit of a weird interplay. Like, you know, sometimes people rely on the stereotypes, you know, oh, Southern Europeans are much more warm and, you know, more uh, more cuddly and, oh, well, no, Northern Europeans are cold, things like that. I, I, I remember these kinds of stereotypes being thrown around in EYP until very recently, maybe still now. But at the same time, you do kind of get this interpersonal, immediate connection with, the, with people that you wouldn't get otherwise. I'm here just chuckling at the idea of some poor kid raiding a foreigner for the first time, and it's Nathan. <laughs> oh, the name's being butchered. Like, I mean... Not a very representative <laughs> choice of a person, but... <laughs> well, the thing is, like, if, if they're an Armenian, you know, I, I had to speak for them to then realize that I'm, <laughs> that I'm not Armenian. <laughs> you know, because, like, the, the face and stuff, they're like, oh, yeah, one of us. Like, no. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. And I think yeah. one that that's one uh one side of EYP that I think that hasn't been that that one potential that hasn't been really explored fully, I think, which is the fact that actually this is very much close to this idea of this deliberative democracy. And and, and EYP kind of get got me as a gateway into that kind of uh theory when I was doing my masters actually, because you know, in deliberative democracy, this whole idea is that you take representative samples from a community, and those representative samples are the ones who deliberate on it, and like you know, on current issues or things to do. And that way, you get a representative quality to the to the result end result that you get, or like not just representative, but also in terms of you kind of equalize the representation of different social groups. Uh, their influence in the ongoing debates. And like, you know, deliberative democracy is very much about, you know, using specific methods to make sure that, you know, people are given the same types of information. They are given ways of debating this topic that will allow them to stray away from their stereotypical, like, you know, preconceived ideas, and that they get this idea that seems appealing to everyone, which is basically committee work in UIP. And I think that uh, for me, that were that, once I heard about this like theory of deliberative democracy, I realized, oh, this is what EYP is doing, but you know, but with much more real stakes, uh, you know, and, uh, and less representation. <laughs> <And> less representation. <laughs> well, national representation, but you know, class-wise, absolutely not. Yeah, yeah. But, but so I think it in that regard, it it gives a very it gives a very different kind of democratic experience that you wouldn't get in any other part of your life. And mm. I don't know, like both as a delegate, I think there's something to appreciate in the fact that if the committee work was done properly, you will end up with, you know, a point of view or a conclusion that you end up agreeing with that you wouldn't have agreed otherwise, where everyone seems to have had some sort of a unanimous agreement on it. And this is very rare in today's society, I think, where people are just usually, they fall into their camps and you're comfortable within that camp and you just hope that you'll end up being the majority. And I, I always appreciated that EYP kind of broke that trend. And if you, also if you're a chair, then you kind of see how you can, how you can steer people away from, you know, pure pointless rhetoric and, you know, steer them more towards actual meaningful discussions of what's at, really at stake. And I don't know, have you, I mean, you guys have both been chairs. Have you guys ever had like, you know, a committee work experience where, the committee was genuinely divided on a topic beforehand, but then through the debates, they actually had ended up with a solution that was, you know, that was not just pointless, oh, media propaganda, mm. uh, let's make a committee to decide on this later, but actually had an interesting solution that everyone had not thought of before, but now we're actually really sold on it. Definitely, definitely. I, 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 and that really re- reminds me of um, Tbilisi 2013. So it was an IAS. I had, I think, like 14 delegates. Uh, everyone's from different countries. And so there was 15 of them, yeah, because there was an eight versus seven split on a very, very key issue, which was the heart of the topic. Because our, our topic was on that. Uh, it was actually a really, really interesting topic. 
it was on um, religious exceptionism. So the, the best way to explain it is if you think of, uh, of uh, if you want a law to say everyone driving a motorbike needs to wear a helmet, you may think, you know, this is a really great idea. This is going to save lives. This is going to prevent issues. And you're like, cool. Well, what if somebody has a turban and that wearing that turban means so much to them? Well, are you saying that they can't ride a motorcycle because they can't wear a helmet? Because they won't be able to take the turban off to then put the helmet on. So do you create an exception of you say, okay, everybody needs to follow the law unless there is a religious exception that will then make you exempt of this particular law and then you define what, which exemptions you have. So it, it was this, this is the, basically the debate that we were having uh, and the topic was around that kind of line and very much the team was completely split. Like half of them were really kind of felt that everything is about personal choice uh, personal decisions and freedom and the other half were really saw everything needs to be defined within the structure of the law and that gives security which then gives freedom and so you had very two different aspects and what i really found is that actually we tackled a lot of that through team building and through different specific games to allow them to be immersed into this and the more they worked within that the more they were able to see their opinions but it wasn't just within the committee work discussions but it was more activities that they had to play out and they had to do to try to overcome this in a certain way. And I'm not going to say that everyone was on the same page and everyone fully agreed with every single solution, but they got a lot, lot closer and they managed to find some kind of some kind of resolution in which they agreed, in which they could move forward with, bearing in mind all of their different perspectives. Yeah. And I think that's the real magic in a way. Like, I, when I when I had that a similar experience in in the national selection conference in the Czech Republic, it was I really felt like oh wow people's opinions actually changed like they they're actually looking at it from a different perspective now and I I felt that was really that's not really something you can see in a different kind of event I think there you are mm, that's true kind of reflecting on this this question for me Barish it kind of occurred to me that. All the topics that I chaired were just so technical that at no point did the delegates manage to have like a moral disagreement on like a major level, uh, which is kind of in interesting to reflect back on why did I end up chairing su such uh, technical technical topics personally. But also kind of takes me back to something I was thinking earlier during, during this conversation about this kind of, okay, so we have different sort of things that EYP as an organization we would like to do, like uh, diversity, etc. And th those are thing things that are very much left on this kind of ANSI slash IO background. But people like me and Nathan that never did ANSI stuff, it's easy for us to, in a way, be left in a mindset where we focus on our experience. In the sense that, okay, we go to a session, we work on a team and we think about, okay, what would have made this a better experience for me? And it's really interesting to think about that leadership from that perspective of how much do we miss out on this kind of opportunities for outreach just within session leaderships, because we're focused on increasing the kind of comfort and uh, sustainability of whatever we're already doing or how do I make this experience better for the team that I had not for the team that I could have that's yeah. a good point I think I think that's an interesting dilemma because because I did listen to some of the episodes that you guys recorded beforehand and in a previous episode with Ali you guys were talking about you know how you kind of want to you you know some people that you work better with so you want to have them on your team but at the same time, there's this whole pseudo-professional selection process where you actually need to give supposedly objective reasons for why these people should be in your team. And I think this kind of really shows the, the, the conflicting thing with the both, like the, conf the conflicting interests in, this, in the situation. I mean, on the one hand, if you are seeing this as a hobby, if you're seeing this as this kind of, you know, something that you do in your personal time where you also get to have fun, you want to have a good session experience for you. You want to be at an event where you're going to be with people that you get along well with, where, you know, things are fun. 
But at the same time, by mm. trying, by limiting yourself to this this set, you know, fun experience, you are also creating this very much of a bubble and like you know a social clique that you know that only allows certain people that match the vibe, so to speak. And I can understand why you know getting along well is also important because if the team is dysfunctional, then no matter the quality of the person who is in your team, like, you know, if you're a president and that person is a chair and there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of friction between how they're running their committee and how it's affecting the, the quality of the session for the delegates, then the fact that you guys don't get along is going to create a problem. It's going to also lower the quality of the session for the delegates as well. It's going to reduce the experience as a whole for every participant. But, but at the same time, if you end up picking only people that you get along well with well then mm-hmm. you are only going you're, you're basically having excuses to meet up with friends in various countries <laughs> and yeah. and i i know that i was guilty of this myself while i was active too i mean i for me uyp was all the virtues aside also a goddamn excuse to just you know go to europe every now and then and you know have parties and mm-hmm. and i think i mean it's a youth event it's supposed to be fun but, you know, quid bonum? Who is having fun? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And picking up on that, on that piece of what you said there around, like, almost looking at it as a dichotomy. If on one hand, you know you can bring these people in and you know the way they're going to work and you can support the rest of the team and the rest of the session and ensuring that, or the unknown and potentially not being able to if they don't match the way that you want to work and stuff like this. Um, I kind of feel like that other side of that dichotomy, this negative one, is less of an issue about them and more of an issue about, let's say, our leadership style of saying that I can only, I only know how to work with these kind of people and I can only really support this kind of thing because this is what I'm used to. I guess there, when someone says, well, actually, I can't have that person in my team, it's not because of that person, it's because of the leader there is not capable of actually unlocking that person's potential and bringing them into the team the way that they want to. And I've heard so many people who speak out against certain leadership teams and I looked at those leadership teams and I know that within certain certain sessions, I've seen them work really, really well. And I know that they're capable of so much, but if they don't, if they're not able to actually make the most out of every individual within their team and cater around them and actually have that understanding, then that is a huge thing that they're missing out on. And then it tends to be that individual who gets the blame, not the leader. Yeah. Yeah, there's also an interesting kind of argument that those people, that the nepotistic group could argue for in the sense that, okay, we are selecting for the for our my team to have people that I know that I can lead in order to give the best session experience to the delegates because those are the majority of the participants and therefore I'm going to have a larger positive impact on the organization through having a positive impact on more participants than I would by having a team that I, I view as subpar or I view as more difficult and therefore less able to work with it. And this kind of interesting, which I think it was goes on, at least I would like to, give credit to that would go on in the background of it rather than it's just being a selfish decision in a way. I mean, I honestly, I, I mean, it's a difficult thing to resolve. I, I Right now I am just trying to think about what that means, but it's it's very hard to, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult situation, I think. And and I think, because I think it, it is also slightly tied to the fact that this is, in a sense, a community, you know, a a Gemeinschaft, and in the, in the sense that this is more tight. In many in many cases, for a lot of people, EYP is a community of you know tight knit people. They have immediate personal connections. It's less rule based organization and more. It's a it's a it's a less rule based organization and more of a you know more of a international friend group almost. But that is not that's not a bad thing. I think, and to a certain extent, this is. This, I mean, being being part of it, such a diverse, such a diverse, not necessarily in class sense, but you know, in many different ways, being part of a diverse community like this, can I think open your eyes up in a significant way. It's kind of, I think, it's what 
it's what separates EYP from MUNs, I think. Like, you know, if you go to MUNs, those are much more of a society, you know, Gesellschaft kind of thing, where, you know, everyone goes there as individuals. Everyone, you know, kind of does their thing within the strict rule set of, you know, how the, how the sessions work. And there's the social activities and the kind of friends you make from there. But it's it's I think it's a different sort of approach where in EYP it's much more of a it's much more of an intimate connection. And what when when you have something like that, when you have community, you also can't have strict rules because that's that's what that's what separates a society from a community. The fact that, you know, there are strict rules and people are judged in a much more, you know, neutral, objective manner and things like that. But so it's messy, I think. It's ultimately it's a it's a messy affair, and it's not hard to have an obvious, clear solution to it most of the time. I mean, do you want to have a sessions where you know the leadership team can bring their A game, but also do you want to have a lot more opportunities than you would have if this was a close knit group, a friend group? It's a it's a tough balance to make, and I can I don't know. It's a it's a it's a tough balance to make. But yeah, what I definitely do agree with is what Nathan said is that it is the limitation of the leadership, not not a fundamental problem with the organization of how our our events are organized. It's just our, our inability, our unwillingness to take on that challenge and work with it. Yeah, I can see so, that too. So I guess like somebody who's who's who might be listening to this, if you're going to be in an EYP session, especially in a position of leadership, maybe that could be a cool exercise, which is that when you're within your team, try to think of, okay, who are, let's say, a couple of individuals in which you don't feel is contributing enough to the team and then change your perspective and tell yourself that you are the person who's not giving those individuals enough and what is it that you can do with them? How can you work with them in a certain way, enable to fully unlock them and allow them to thrive because they can? And you might be the one getting in their way as opposed to the other way around. Yeah, that's very fair. I think, like, especially when you're in the leadership, I think you need to make a very conscious effort to go out of your comfort zone. And, mm-hmm. and especially when after you reach a certain step of, you know, having done a few sessions as a, as a, as a chair, VP, president, etc., and you think, okay, now I know my style, this is what I do. And I think if you, if you start to get kind of stay within that bubble, then yeah, I think it, it becomes ultimately detrimental and there needs to be a lot more conscious effort from those who are in positions of authority, essentially to make an effort for that. I, I mean, if I were to, make some self-reflection on my end. I'm not sure if I did that to the fully ex- fullest extent when I was in leadership positions. And I think, I, I, I mean, I think there's just, I think we can do better as a whole is <laughs> definitely a good conclusion to make. Yeah. An interesting kind of sidetrack from this that comes to my mind is something I've been talking a lot about with a dear friend of mine recently about this kind of feeling of safety and belonging in a team because that's definitely not Mm. a given even like i'd argue that most eypers that spend a lot of time in in this organization have their kind of most homey most where they feel welcome and safe environments within one of their eyp officials team or or delegations or committees or whatever and it's kind of interesting to also look at it from a perspective of like we, at least I personally am comfortable enough to share here that there hasn't been a team in EYP where I would have felt completely safe and comfortable just from the perspective of there are individuals in it that don't make me feel safe or I don't get along with in some sense. And that's also an interesting way perspective to look into this whole topic of like safety and uh, the safe space and safety of people in in a team but also gonna safety and safe space of yourself as a team leader have you guys had this kind of what's your experience with the safest most welcoming 
team that you've had in EYP? I mean, it's a tough question. It's an it, hmm. It gives me a lot to think, but I think when it comes to safety, what I would say is that personally, I've had a lot of sessions where you know I felt very happy with you. Like the experience itself was delightful, and I I never really I never really had a like I think for me Amsterdam in National Selection Conference in Amsterdam where I co-presided with Bernie uh, was one session where I really felt um, really welcomed. It was and it was it was a bit of a personal thing as well because it, the session was right around my birthday. Like I think it was the second day of committee work or something like that. That was my birthday and. The, the officials and you know even delegates came up to say happy birthday and things like that it was it was the most welcome that i felt to the point that on my way back to paris from that session in in the bus i basically at some point i just started crying from happiness for like because the because the the experience itself was just so incredible and it was so socially overwhelmingly positive and I think that was the most safe that I felt in that regard, the most, you know, in tune and welcomed that I was in EYP. But I think when it comes to outside of my personal experience and trying to understand how safety is within EYP, I think, to be honest, there are a lot of power dynamics that I think make EYP less safe than it needs to be for a lot of people, especially more marginalized people, you know. Uh, for instance, when I started, I remember EYP being seen as this much more, you know, sexual adventure land almost, you know, the kind of stories that you would get told and the kind of things that people were up to. And when you when you look back on it now in hindsight with, you know, Me Too and everything, it you kind of realize, whoa, there is a lot of, you know, actually thinly veiled sexual harassment that was just everywhere. And mm -hmm. that's that was a mass I think and I think EYP is having its reckoning with that, you know, with a lot of safe, safe teams being much more of a common practice and these people being much more mindful of these things. And I mean, I am the least qualified person to talk about this as a cis head man, but I think, um, I think there's some changes in the positive direction in that, in that regard. But, and I think there's, there needs to be still a lot more effort to make sure that, you know, these kinds of power dynamics don't hurt any people and there's accountability and there's, you know, that, that people pay proper attention to safety and consent um, in events. And I, think, and I think that was the biggest problem that I've seen now that I look back on it and with a bit more of a, mm. with a, bit more of a hindsight. And I realize how many people around me were doing a lot of problematic things. There were a lot of moments where I was problematic myself. And, you know, it's a bit of a tough thing to reckon with. But it is something that people need to be mindful of, I think. And, and I think if, if, especially if you want to be more diverse, more inclusive, you know, not just rich, rich white people going from one exotic place to another, but, you know, properly representative of the European population and its richness, you need to be a lot more, you need to be a lot more mindful of making sure that you are making the space safe for everyone. I think that's, that's never, that should not be taken for granted. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I also feel that um, my understanding of safety, I feel, has really, really changed over the past year to two. Um, beforehand, I used to think of safety as physical safety. Are people okay? Are people okay in their space? Cool. Yeah, we're good to go. But then like diving more into that emotional safety and can I actually be me in this space? Or do I have to now try to convince other people of who I am and try to somehow fit in? Do I feel the fear of being judged or being looked down upon or people using social pressure or group pressure to get me to do things, even if they don't realize it, in which is outside of the me that I recognize and the me that I want to be? Is there any risk of potential coercion, even if it's not there? Do I have the feeling that it could be there? And a lot of these elements coming in. And I guess I realized that there was only one team that we actually focused on building this. And this was in RISE, um, so the, the RENIS 2016, in my buddy group. In my buddy group, we had this. We only focused on emotional team building 
and we only focused on building trust, building a support group and using certain exercises that allows us to open up to each other and to feel a sense of safety within our team. And then for a lot of us within that team, this space was then our our crux that we could depend upon when, when shit hit the fan. And at one point that really happened for me and I broke down in tears and my team were there to support me and to hold me. And having that space to be able to process anything I needed to process, having that space in which I knew I could just open up with anything and there wasn't any judgment and there wasn't, I didn't have to try to be someone, I didn't have to try to impress, I didn't have to do any of that. I fully felt that safety there. And I feel it's definitely something I tried and I don't feel I succeeded at all. And Joel can definitely agree with that side is that I, I tried to do during the, the Yerevan IS. Yes, I know he's looking at it with those eyes. There were some like weird games and weird things within the two wielding. True, that didn't work out, but it was an attempt to move into that direction. Because the whole idea, yeah, you, you agree with that? I, I see yes, the attempt. I don't agree with the execution. Yes, definitely. So, um, the thing is, when it comes to chairs teams, because as chairpersons, we're used to team building delegates. We know how to do that well. So we just use those same tools to team build chairpersons. The chairpersons are not going to come together to build a resolution. Why are you team building them that way? That is one specific tool to achieve a specific task. It's like if so if all you have is a hammer, all you see are nails and you just want to use that on it. I went to, in 2016, I went to this um, emotional coaching course and holy crap, they went through team building with us on a different way that I had never experienced before. It was all about connecting us and building a group of trust in which we can explore deeper within us. As an example, uh, in UIP, we use Dixit cards quite a lot. Have you guys used any Dixit cards for debriefings and stuff? Mm -hmm. um, was that used in Azerbaijan? Joel, do you remember? Oh, <laughs> I remember Dixit being there, but it probably wasn't used for team building. Yeah, I could have. I don't know. I I, I carried those things everywhere. I could have could have <laughs> used like given it into a committee or something. So, so, so there are cards like Dixit. For people who don't know, like Dixit, it, it is a cool game in which you have this deck of cards that have different images that are very abstract or can have different meanings that mean something different for each person. Um, and it, it's a part of an actual board game, but the way that we tend to use it a lot in UIP is for debriefing. Um, it works as a really cool tool where it allows people to anchor to something where you suddenly put them all down and say, okay, select a card that represents how you feel about how this activity went or something like this and it allows them to kind of take a step and come out of their mind as they start to explore this and dive more to their emotions uh, for example um i've started to look at those kind of stuff more within the team building space where when you're instead of doing get to know games where you do two truths and a lie or something like this where you're sharing just quick fun facts or something like this you do more where you kind of distribute these cards down and then you have different prompts, such as uh, I, did, I did this the other day in a training where we started off with, um, as a child, I, and then it's up to you. You take a look at the cards, and then it's also up to you of the depth that you want to go into. So then you actually open the door. If somebody wants to explore something with it, of their childhood with the people in the room, the door's open to do so. If you don't want to, you don't have to. You go to the level of what you would like, but there what you're actually opening up is the ability for people to go a little bit deeper, to start to open up with each other, to understand, not to see people as a category or a quick label or a quick box, but actually start to see them deeper. And then there's all different, really cool, more emotional team building games out there to allow people to go more in depth with each other. And I feel those are creating a safe space. And I think this form of team building is something that's really missing in EYP and is something I wouldn't necessarily say is always the greatest thing for delegates necessarily because delegates, we are building them to a certain point to do something and I think we do that well. But more for officials teams, I think there are other ways of team building that we can do to do exactly what Joel's talking about of creating a much better sense of safety within the team. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can... I can see the way you've described it. it. It basically is an invitation to make yourself a bit more vulnerable. And, you know, being vulnerable is, is how you make these kinds of in, intimate connections that, you know, that really can help with 
the kind of group cohesion that an officials team might need. And it's a, it's a, I think it's a definitely something that needs to be improved upon in, I think, in EYP. And I think one thing that you said about, you know, using delegate team building tools on chairs, I all, that always felt silly to me. And that made me think of one thing that I also want to ask you guys. And I think you, Nathan, you, this will be an easy one for you, but you know, how we, I mean, how have you guys used, have you guys used any of your, you know, chairing skills or anything, anything similar to the kind of social dynamics experience that you had in EYP outside of EYP? Because in my case, what basically happened was that I, so I started a Dungeons and Dragons party, you know, with, you know, friends. And as the DM, I realized that whenever there was like, you know, inter-party conflict or, you know, some kind of issue between players, I was very much taking a chair-like tone. Like I remember distinctly there was a moment when there was like a huge discussion between two players who really didn't like each other. And in the, the WhatsApp group chat was not going well. And I basically started business chairing my friend group, you know, trying to resolve their differences. And I thought... The moment I did that, I was thinking, oh, EYP is helping me so much. I like this is really useful. And then to nobody's surprise, because you cannot business chair a friend group, the group did not really last that long. And then, you know, then, then there were issues afterwards. And the and the game kind of blew up and turned into two different groups because the people were just not getting along. And then I realized, wait, I am not running an EYP committee that needs to get a resolution done in a week. This is like, you know, these are people, you know, I don't have authority over them in the same way that a chairperson does. And even then, I think the authority of a chairperson can be questioned. And and then I kind of realized, okay, maybe I should let people have, you know, resolve their own issues like adults within the friend group, even if it's badly affecting the game. And, and that kind of made me realize, oh, okay, the kind of EYP chairing solutions don't work everywhere. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you definitely shouldn't approach your friend group like you have authority over them. That's just not going to work in real life unless you actually do have authority, someone in you're in a team leadership position. But one way that I found myself using uh, EYP techniques, not one-to-one, -one, of course, but for one, one way that I found useful was um, debriefing. Mm, and yeah. it's kind of a more gift style feedbacking sense of like okay how do how do i talk to people about issues in a more one especially in a one-to-one -one setting like how, how do i bring up that something is not making someone feel good or have some, how do i encourage someone to approach another person about uh, something that's not working in the dynamics of the team and it, especially when it comes to like non-violent communication if you're interested in that go listen to our episode with martin newman um, Shout out to martin. <laughs> it's, it's been very useful is there something that you especially want to cover with that nathan because i'm kind of interested in popping back into what we were talking about before yeah that, because that's my like little tangent <laughs> <laughs> yeah because i'm really interested in exactly like this kind of what you were talking about this emotional uh, more emotion-based uh, team building for change teams because i agree like building a church team like a committee makes no sense it's not a committee it's not going to be working in the same way but i actually funnily enough ended up doing something similar with my committee once of having this sort of a emotional team building sort of this uh how, how would i describe it these days i, I remember describing it as a sort of a uh, therapy sessions almost of going into this like if you're willing to share then share but one thing that did pop up there that was actually somewhat uncomfortable is that people progress at such a, di at such a different rate with how comfortable they feel uh, with a group is that I found myself in a situation where some of the delegates were sharing things that were emotional to the point that it was making other people in the team uncomfortable. How would you then uh, approach this from a, a chairs team perspective if you're trying to do a more emotional team building, you're giving people space to share as much as they're comfortable with, but also kind of trying to keep it to a 
space that is still comfortable for everybody. That is a tough one because there is you're right there there is that like fine balance between where I would kind of almost make the analogy, and I think we've discussed this before in a previous episode, of those hardcore academic presidents who look at a resolution as being the output of their academic worth and has to be up to their level. Well, sometimes, let's say a chairperson who wants to be really deep into their emotional self and wants to be really open and has, let's say, done a lot of therapy work on themselves, um, maybe that they want to also view that their committee is a reflection of them. But maybe, you know, so, 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 so then it'd be quite easy to then want to dive into that emotional team building self, etc. And I feel this is what kind of happened in Yerevan, where I had done a lot of work on myself. I had been through all these different things and I had so many different realizations. And I wanted then the team to be a reflection of that. But the team wasn't at that point, and there were certain issues that I wasn't dealing with in that team. And so I kind of sidetracked them in order to focus on what I wanted to see as a reflection of this group, because the way that the chair team works should show the way that I work as a president. But no, that's not the case. It should be that as a leader, I should then adapt to that group. So I think there definitely is a merit to introduce certain elements of this. Um, just like there is a merit to open any door, but it should be the delegates who walk through it and kind of show you where they want to go. And they should be the ones to kind of indicate the limits of this as well. Yeah, I definitely agree with that idea. I feel like this is, I mean, because I think half of chairing, if, if half of chairing work is basically guiding the committee, or at least like you know, half of leadership is guiding the people under you to perform a specific task, or you know, create a specific kind of group out of them. The other half, I think, is definitely observing them well. And I think that was one thing that I found. You know, I, that I think that's a that's a skill that's really useful both in and outside of UIP in terms of you know being able to look at a group and to see where people are. You know, with in terms of the social interactions, is there like a being a hierarchy being formed? Uh, how people are come how comfortable people are emotionally, and you know. I, the, the very surface level thing of this is obviously the kind of thing that you see in EIP chairing manuals where, you know, they would go, oh, there's this fake nice phase and then they start being a team and then like, and, but beyond that, I think the work of the chairperson and the team leader in that regard is definitely being in tune with how everyone is doing. And if that's the case, then you just need to make, like, I, there, 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 then there's this duty for the team leader and for the committee chairperson to just make sure that no, like the, the committee reaches a stage of comfort before doing anything that would require a higher level of vulnerability of sorts. And I think that's a, I think that's a diff, that that's a tough, it's a tough uh, balancing act, but I think being able to observe that is also kind of the markings of a good leader in that in that or in that regard too like you know being able to sense how people are doing and adapting your plan accordingly i think there's a really interesting balance to strike there this i'd argue that might even be impossible because like everyone as a leader whether you're leading a church team or a media team or a committee you have certain things you want to accomplish with the team you want to make sure that they're comfortable they're having a good time etc etc um but then if you have this sort of ideas that you also want to make sure that they're emotionally uh, in a safe space and also comfortable sharing things with each other that might just be that there's someone in your team that that's never going to be the case for. And then what do you then, okay, so you could kind of argue that you should approach it from a like, neutral perspective of, okay, you shouldn't come to the session with anything you necessarily want to accomplish with the team on a beyond they're having a good time, whatever, give any basic setting there. But also then what, can is are the, is there a level of this kind of basic neutral level goals for let's say uh, church team leadership of what should one try to strive for in a way that 
is neutral enough that every person that you put in that that team, regardless of who they are, are be able to be comfortable with it. And I'd argue that that doesn't exist. And then it's just a you just need to wait until you see who you have at the session and try to adapt to that, which is then a really complicated thing to do at a moment's notice while you're leading trainings. Yeah. And I guess also to bear in mind that what, what, you're, what you're describing of trying to understand this team and see, okay, what do they need? Or should I apply this? And am I, am I taking them too far on this or that? All of these are just narratives that we make up anyway. So uh, uh, the, well, the, I guess, you know, you could say, once again, the whole world is just a narrative that we are constantly making up and we're trying to make sense of stuff around us. But hey, that's, that, that would be going to a really big <laughs> rabbit hole. Of this is basically which... my thesis topic, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and with Joe, we've been having many, many, many discussions around this, you know. But um, yeah, so if, if we do kind of take that perspective of, we do live in a subjective reality where we just create a narratives anyway. The way that we're looking at our team and the way that we kind of say, okay, this is what they need. This is what you're telling yourself that they need. Or you say, okay, um, I don't think that they should go to this space where I wanted to take them to that to go to that space. Once again, that's just a narrative that you are creating based on observations that you have made and is not a objective reality that other people share. So depending on your emotional setting, when you arrive into that set, into that session and what's been going on in your mind, you're going to then perceive the committee to be one way or another. If you go in wanting to see sunshine and rainbows, no matter how bad things are, you're going to see sunshine and rainbows and give yourself a pat on the back and say everything was fine. If you go in with that critical mind of anything I do is not going to be good enough, no matter if this was the best that you could possibly do, you're going to walk away kind of like feeling that that negativity coming out. So I guess this is an extra layer in there that makes this conversation even more difficult, where you can't really just come in and kind of say, okay, yeah, there are these base values or, or base I want to take my committee to, or during this session, I feel I took them there. Because once again, you're, that's just us kind of making up a story that makes sense to us. And... I get to add on to that, I think I think one well, one interesting way of looking at it is also trying to see kind of what you're valuing more, which is kind of the way you know we're talking about you know we talk about these academic presidents for whom the output of uh, and the quality of the output is the most important thing, and so for them, kind of the social dynamics or you know the whole process of the whole thing be damned. I just want good results will be kind of the out the the result, and that's just a. I mean, and then that's just what you're going to be pushing for. And that's going to create a very different session experience than, say, the kind of social output, the social output that you were mentioning, like, you know, the kind of thing that you mentioned, Nathan, like this idea that, you know, I want the committee or the chairs team or the session to reflect, kind of get, get something socially relevant from this event, to reflect my social development as a person, to reflect the kind of bonds that I want people to have from an EYP session. And that's going to create a very different thing. But then if people are not going to, if, they, if people are not looking for the kind of same kind of social connection, that's going to be the bit of a weird, weird result. And then, and I think then, then there's the, you know, jack of all trades way of doing it, which is kind of, we're focusing on the process of going, well, I am going to apply whatever, like, you know, I'm going to apply the general method of, having something good and if my application of it is good hopefully both the the, the output and the social connections made will be of a decent quality and i think that's more of a that's closer to what joel said about you know adapting the situation as you go to try and see what the needs of this particular session are and i think i think there's i, I can see reasons for adopting any three of the positions and i think but personally i've always been a more of a process guy of you know of you know not judging myself by the results or not judging myself by the social connections those should be kind of the natural byproducts of the fundamentals of a good session being applied well and it and and i think and i think in that case you just have to adapt to the situation and it's a it's never guaranteed that you're going to get what you want you know some people are just going to be socially not in tune with the rest of the rest of the group and 
if they are if they got what they wanted out of the event and if there were no you know catastrophic failures socially or output wise then i mean if if they got their objectives then as the leader i guess i should be satisfied as well that you know that that they got what they wanted out of this event they contributed positively to the team it might not have been to my expectations but i that couldn't i mean but that's that's okay yeah that side of acceptance and understanding and i guess that's what's really cool about us having this conversation is that we're not here to kind of come out with a specific framework or specific recommendations to be like you should do things like this you should do things like that but i guess anyone generally listen to this maybe it evokes new things in their mind that they're like huh i need to reflect on that a bit more i need to reflect on this a bit more and maybe that can take them a step closer towards that acceptance because maybe they go into a session and they don't realize they think they've messed everything up and that everything's gone bad but maybe if they take a step back they realize well that's just because they have a specific aim and maybe that wasn't the same aim as the people around them and so this whole reflection can just lead to better acceptance which i guess is always a nice step forwards i mean i think it's kind of in it's it's the nature of the thing ultimately you know the fact that we are de- we are dealing with very complex human interactions and human emotions in a very specific environment in a very short time span so obviously things are going to get messy and there's no end all be all theory that can explain everything and do allow you to do everything perfectly so i guess if you're listening to this podcast and if you want to understand how to do eyp well there's no one sing- there's no one specific way the best we can do as three old geezers is basically telling you what for- worked for us and what didn't and you can draw your own conclusions and but i mean you can always just say oh no that's bullshit I, I i could definitely do it this way and i had positive experiences doing this that's completely the opposite of what you said and you would be right and if it if it worked in your case and i think when it comes to human relations they they just they just aren't really absolute truths you just have to you just have to modify and adapt whatever you have in your hands to the situation at hand that's definitely the case most of the time apart from one exception which is Joe and I have written a book about how to be a best leader and that will have all <laughs> of the right answers and all the right best practices and is available for the low cost of 200 euros per page <laughs> well i'm going to exception i'm going to one up you and say that you can join my 15 hour course on how to be the best leader bestest leader ever and <laughs> I can coach you individually on how how what things you're doing right or wrong. Oh, nice. We've been one upped. Damn, okay, we we need to build something Joel. Should we we should do that like Finnish island course thingy. Mm. <laughs> Finnish island course? Yeah. <laughs> I know the meanings of these words individually but together they make no sense explain <laughs> <laughs> maybe things will be revealed one day mm, yes that that is not for our listeners to know yet nathan is twirling his mustache <laughs> <Man is thinking. laughs>